read a passage from God's word. Look at what it means, talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Our passage today begins at verse 7, but just to give us some context for the reading, I'm going to start in verse 3 and read through to verse 10. If you found that, would you stand together with me and I'll read our passage this morning. Paul writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loved. Now here's our passage for today. In him, that is, in the one he loves, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. We pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word. Spirit of God, we submit ourselves to you now this morning. We place ourselves underneath your word and ask that you would use it powerfully to speak to our hearts. We believe this is a living word. This is a word that has power, power to affect change, power to reveal, and ultimately what your word reveals to us is you, and so show us more of you today. You've said in your word that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it, oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. One of the benefits of looking back at history, among many, many others, is the way it enables us, I think, to appreciate technological advancements that have just taken place over the years. So consider, for example, the comforts that we experienced this morning traveling either in vehicles or in the bus, whatever it is that brought you here today, as opposed to traveling here by horse and carriage. That's a technological advancement that we experienced today, which is how actually most of us would have been traveling just a little over 100 years ago. That's how we all still would have traveled. Here we are, Granville Street, 1905. You want to head down to uh, pick up something? Let me hitch up the horses and get down there. It's a lot bigger deal. Now, sure, a ride like that, that's nice to go around Stanley Park like that, maybe once every decade. But my guess is that most of us would not trade the simplicity of just turning a key in your ignition, tapping the compass card. You wouldn't trade that for, you know, the rigors of traveling distances by horse on any regular basis, probably with the exception of my daughter. I can see her saying, well, actually, 
Even if you've never ridden with, by a horse and carriage, though, you're likely still familiar with a common expression that's derived from that mode of travel called, where people will talk about putting the cart before the horse. Ever heard somebody say that to you? Usually it's our dads. They say, hey, listen, it looks like you're putting the cart before the horse there. And of course, what they mean by that expression is basically reversing the intended order of something in such a way that it's going to hinder or block your ability to actually achieve your goal. The reason for that, just in keeping with the analogy, is because the cart or the carriage is what you're intending to bring or deliver. The horse is how you deliver it. It's the, the power, the, the means by which you can bring that, that cart that you're trying to deliver. And so in the end, it doesn't matter, actually. It doesn't matter how important, how valuable the cargo on that cart is that you want to deliver. Without the horse pulling at the front end, you, it, it's never going to get to its desired destination, ever. But we are continuing now, returning to this series this morning through the book of Ephesians, which, if you've seen the poster at least, the subtitle of this entire series is to unite all things in him to unite all things in him that is christ which as i've said a few times now is the primary plan purpose and will of god in sending jesus and we saw it there particularly in verse 9 and 10 but what i've been saying is that's actually a summary of everything paul writes in ephesians that's that's everything he's going to talk about and according to a famous preacher from the past dr martin lloyd jones he said he actually sees that as the message of the entire Bible. That's the storyline of the Bible. God's desire to bring all things back into union with himself. So, so to bring all things, heaven and on earth together, reconciling all of God's good creation, including us, back to him in Jesus, as well as to one another, that is the mysterious will of God that he planned to carry out in Jesus before the creation of the world. But, what verse 7 and 8 before that show us first is that the necessary means by which God's plan, purpose, and will is carried out is by, namely, the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Which means, just to keep using this analogy of a horse and cart, God's plan to, to unite all things together in him, that's, that's the cart, Okay, that's the, the goal that God intends to carry out. But redemption through his blood is, is the horse that needs to be attached at the front end. It was, it's what must precede that goal in order for it to be fulfilled and realized. So, okay, probably not a big surprise to you. The Bible gets the order right and puts the, the horse before the cart. Uh, and, and, and so that it can actually come about. So that, that that goal can actually be realized where redemption pulls the cart of God's will to bring all things together in him. The problem, however, is that for a lot of people today, we like to try to reverse that order. We like to try to reverse it. That is, we really, really like the idea of and the benefits of a reconciled relationship with God, being, being let back into the Garden of Eden party, if you will. We, we love that idea. That sounds really great. But we're not so excited about, we're not so comfortable with acknowledging our desperate need for the redemption that makes that possible. In fact, maybe we could just get to that later on. Let's just focus here. We want to start with this because this sounds really, really good. In fact, many of us, I would even go so far as to say we'd rather just ignore the horse part altogether. And let's just stick to the getting back to reconciled relationship, all the benefits and, and, and the enjoyment of this. 
Never mind that. And we'll get more into why that is as we dig in this morning, but the point, as the expression rightly says, is that that will never work. It doesn't work that way. Trying to put the cart ahead of the horse or removing the horse altogether is always and ever going to leave the cart exactly where you loaded it up and never going to reach its desired destination. And so in order to help us understand the Bible's order of putting redemption before unification and why those things need to happen that way, I want to look at our passage here this morning in just two ways. But, but here's the tricky thing. In order to help you see why the order matters so much, I'm actually going to reverse the order of how we talk about those things. So we'll talk, first of all, about the unifying will of God in Christ. And then we'll talk about the horsepower of redemption. Okay, so we'll talk about the unifying will of God in Christ, the, the cart, and then the horsepower of redemption. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again with me to our passage there? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, follow along with me as we look at the mysterious will of God revealed as well as made possible by our redemption in Jesus. Okay, so let's look first of all at the unifying will of God in Christ. The unifying will of God in Christ. So, so let's take a look quickly again at, at what this plan and, and will is of God that he purposed in Christ in verses 9 and 10. And then we'll just talk about quickly what it is that Paul is trying to communicate there. Look at verse 9. Paul says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, <clears throat> according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, which sounds very much like what we were looking at through Advent in Galatians 4. <clears throat> what is the purpose? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, there are at least two elements I see there that I think we need to highlight. One is how the mystery of God's will came to be known, and the second is the content of that will. So those are two things I think we need to see in the answer to the first question, how it is that the mystery of God's will came to be known, we see clearly right at the beginning of verse 9 there. What does it say? Look with me. It says, he made it known. He did it. Okay, so that's it's nice when the answers are easy. God is the one who revealed this mystery, going on so far as to say that God revealed it according to his own pleasure and his timing. But God is the one who revealed the mystery of this will. And, and the, the thing that's hard for us is whenever we come to the Bible, there's always something of a gap that goes on. We've got a historical gap. We've got a language gap. The Bible was written in a different language. There's always those gaps present. But when we come to a word like mystery, we not only have to overcome those gaps, we also need to overcome a semantic gap as well. Because in our modern 21st century usage, we tend to look at a word like mystery and think of either a puzzle that needs to be solved, like something that we need Scooby-Doo and his gang to come in and gather the clues and help us figure out, or we see mystery as something that is unknowable. Like something you see on a Discovery Channel special. Archaeologists cannot, it's a mystery. What these hieroglyphics mean, we don't understand. Those are the two ways we tend to see the word mystery. The problem is, that's not exactly, neither one of those definitions is exactly how the New Testament means mystery whenever it talks about a mystery. When the New Testament authors talk about mystery, what they mean, as again Lloyd-Jones states it, is this, quote, It is not something that is incomprehensible to the human mind, but rather something that is undiscoverable 
by the unaided human mind. He goes on. The term mystery means that this great truth concerning God's will and purpose of salvation can only be received when God makes it known and reveals it. So do you see the difference? So what that means is, okay, no, uh, Scooby-Doo and his crew, they couldn't discover the mystery of God's will just by finding enough clues and, and investigating for long enough. They'd never be able to discover the mystery of God's will. But contrary to some liberal scholars throughout the ages who have said that the Bible can't be preached propositionally, neither is the purpose and will of God for our salvation something that can't ever be known. The explicit point Paul is making here is that what is unknowable by our finite human understanding and wisdom, God has made known to us. He made it known to us because he wanted us to know it. And he wanted us to know it because he wanted us to be saved. He wanted us to be united again with him. And when it comes to the content, what is the content of the mystery of God's will that he made known? We see it there explicitly in the second half of verse 10. Paul writes that the mystery of God's will that he purposed in Christ is, quote, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Which is, just think about that for a second, is this, is this huge, incredible, cosmic-sized vision of, of hope and, and of reconciliation that ought to be good news for anyone and everyone who hears it. Why? Well, because... It doesn't matter what generation, what historical time period you happen to be encountering this in. Everyone reading this is, should be encouraged and excited about this because we live in a world where we see and experience division all around us every single day. You just need to open up your news app. You need to flip on CNN, whatever it is. You just need to wake up in the morning and you experience division Everywhere in this world, it's just part of the framework of the world. On a global scale, we, we see it everywhere. We see divisions among races. We see divisions among nations and, and people groups. We see division among genders. We see uh, disparity as it relates to division of wealth and resources. Everywhere you see it. And then on a personal level, we see uh, divisions among spouses, divisions among kids and their parents. Families divided. We, we see friends, neighbors, you can't escape it. It's everywhere. So living in a world filled with so many divisions, how, how hopeful, how life-giving is a vision like this, if it could actually be true, that is, to imagine every single one of those divisions healed, reconciled, re restored to healthy functioning again. Like, just, just stop and try to even imagine for a moment a world where every division you see today, globally and personally, no longer existed. Can you even do it? For most of us, we can't. Or at least we can't, we can't see it well or we can't hold on to the picture very long. And the reason is because we're born into a world where division, to one degree or another, is just part of the air we breathe. It's all we know. So it's almost impossible to imagine a world where those things don't exist anymore. And so imaginings like that we see as, you know, maybe pleasant fantasies, pleasant diversions, but ultimately they're just, they're, they're useless. They're, they're a waste of time and emotional resources. Why? Because we know it's only a matter of time before whatever divisions that we know and we experience are just going to come and rip us back down out of the clouds to earth again. 
So we don't dare go there too often because the disappointment of seeing it can't be is just too much, so we don't bother. And yet, even for the one who'd say, I gave up hoping for such a dream as that long ago. There's just, there's just something, I don't know what it is, there's something about encountering a vision like this, a dream, a hopeful future picture like this again, that just stirs the embers of hope in our hearts whether we want it to or not. We see it and there's something in it that's just almost against our will. We're like, oh. And what I would submit to you this morning is that your encountering of this statement of God's will this, this, this God's purpose and will for his divided world, your encountering of this vision is not an accident. I believe, absolutely, God wanted you. He meant for you to encounter this vision of hope and reunification again this morning. He intended for you. That's why he brought you here this morning. Because as one author stated it, despair, which is the absence of all hope, Despair is the belief that tomorrow will be just like today. Despair is the belief that tomorrow will be just like today. And yet, the hope of God's word in this text, as well as in countless other places, again and again, is no. No, it won't. A day is coming, God says, when tomorrow and then every day after that will not ever again be like today. You know that. Where every painful division you experience right now will one day be no more. Apostle John gives us an incredible picture of what that hopeful reality will look like all the way in the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21. When he writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. We look at that and we, we get a, just a, a snapshot, a, a brief passing picture of what that hopeful will of God presented here in our passage looks like and it just fills up our hearts with oh man I want that oh man I want that day I want that day when all these divisions all this pain that I'm suffering and it will be gone but what we must never hear the Bible saying ever in passages like Revelation 21 or even in our passage today is to see these beautiful future visions and hear the Bible saying so so stop worrying about your present painful reality that's not important. Or, or, or forget about that, the crushing weight of those things you experienced in the past. That stuff doesn't matter. Just forget about all that and just, just focus on the future vision. Just forget about this stuff. It doesn't matter. Just focus on the future vision and, 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 and that will make everything okay. No. No. 
That's not what the Bible is trying to say at all. The hope God intends to stir in you by revealing his unifying will to you isn't for a second about having you ignore the present difficulties that we all face living in a world of divisions with some kind of a head in the sand, pie in the sky, uh, blind optimism. No, it's simply about keeping hope alive in you. That you would never reach the place of despair. It's about keeping hope alive in you that in Christ we will prevail one day. Admiral Jim Stockdale, who survived eight years in a prisoner of war camp, said it well. He said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith, or in our context we could say hope. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with, uh, with where am I at? You, can ne- <laughs> you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality whatever they might be, to which I believe the Bible would say yes and amen. So it's not about ignore the present hurt, ignore the stuff that's going on now, and just focus on the future. No, it's about keeping hope alive that in Christ one day we will prevail, that a tomorrow is truly coming that will not be like today. Okay, so that's the the unifying will of God in Christ. God's revelation to us of his good, reconciling purpose for his divided world. Again, it's not about demand for for blind hope as though everything's fine, but to keep hope alive despite the difficult life, just how difficult life can be in this divided world. But something essential to be reminded of is that God's hopeful vision for unifying this world in so many different ways is something his word says that he purposed to be realized in Christ, that he purposed to be realized in Christ, which ultimately highlights one of the divisions that we didn't even mention in the last point. You might have wondered why we didn't, but which is actually the greatest division there is living in this divided world, whether you can see it or not, or whether you believe you experience it or not, and it's this, the division that exists between us and God. That is the greatest division there is living in this divided world, a division that has existed since the moment in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin entered God's good creation and fractured and divided everything, including creation itself. But as I mentioned already, before presenting this hopeful, cosmic-sized, cart vision of reconciliation of all things in heaven and earth, the Bible reveals God's plan to deal with, with this division as well placing the horse of redemption through the blood of Jesus in front as the means by which this cart can reach its intended destination. So let's look lastly at the horsepower of redemption. The horsepower of redemption. I don't know how many of you were here for the uh, Procovum series we did in the fall um, just last year, but if you were here... One of the things you might remember when we spent time in Genesis is that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good commands and ate the fruit that they were forbidden to eat from, it not only fractured their relationship with each other, it also fractured their relationship with God to the point where they, they were forced to leave the Garden of Eden that they were, where they had always dwelt in, in perfect, intimate, unbroken fellowship with God, which shows us 
ultimately, that there isn't just a horizontal dimension to sin's curse. There's also a vertical dimension to it as well. The problem that that vertical division created was that the earth and everything in it was created by God and created for God. Which means, among many other things, when God's relationship with his creation becomes divided, nothing works anymore like it's supposed to. It doesn't work as it was intended. Uh, the Apostle Paul describes some of the consequences of creation's division from God in a passage you might be familiar with in Romans 8. When he says this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the storyline that the Bible is revealing is that it's ultimately, it's our division from God that results in all the other divisions that we see around us in the world today. This division is what brings about all these divisions that we see around us. And while it's good and, and right to seek to, to heal and, 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 and bring about reconciliation in our lives and in the world today where we see divisions, the most pressing division that needs to be reconciled for every single person is our divided relationship with God. That is the most pressing priority which we need to begin with, along with seeking to heal the divisions around us. The problem with that, however, is that we're not able to do it. We're not able to reconcile the divided relationship with God in and of ourselves. And the reason is because the sin that originally caused us to be divided from God and have to leave the Garden of Eden that remains in us to this day. We still have it. Which means that the, the, the angels and the flaming sword that were said to, to guard the entrance back into God's presence back in the Garden of Eden, proverbially speaking, those things remain between us now. We still can't reach him. We still can't enter into his presence and heal this divided relationship with him. So just considering all that we've looked at this morning already means our sin is, is, is this barrier. It's this division that stands forever between us and God's hopeful vision of bringing all things back in together into relationship with him. It's always there and it's not passable by us. Which is a reality that's Really very hard for a lot of us to accept. And I hear people say all the time, maybe you've even said yourself, okay, well, if God is this all-powerful being, this God who can just say, okay, let there be light, and there's light. If he can say, let there be this, and there's this. If he's got this great power, why can't God just say, let there be forgiveness? Is he not powerful enough to just say, let there be forgiveness and just fix the division here so that his vision of bringing all things together can happen. Is he not powerful enough to do it? Does he not want to do it? It's a great question. Which is, unfortunately, one that is formed out of an understanding of God that sees him only as loving and not also holy and just. For God to only be loving, he would just, I'll do whatever I can to fix this. But he's also holy and just, which is the thing, the reason why he can't just say, let there be forgiveness. I mean, God plainly warned Adam in the garden, the consequence for rebelling against his command not to eat from the forbidden fruit was death. For on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Which means that in order for justice to truly be carried out, 
and the sin that divided God and mankind to be repaired, it means a life must be paid. A life must be paid, which is exactly where the glorious grace of our passage comes in and the horsepower of redemption through the blood of Jesus connects the, the, the cart of God's will to unite all things in heaven and earth back to himself and makes it possible. So let's, let's look back at what Paul had to say there in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me now. Here he describes it. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You notice he didn't say and. There's no and there. It is, he's describing what redemption through his blood is, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but first of all, let's just consider that word redemption. Commentators all point out is that this, what this word refers to primarily is a payment of a ransom for either a slave or someone being held in captivity like a, a hostage. That's what that word redemption means. And there's just far too many, far too many re references in the Bible, explicit and implicit, that, that, that show us that sin... The sin that's, that's keeping us right now is not just something we do, it's something we are enslaved by. It's something we're held in captivity to. In the exact same way the people of Israel were literally enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt and needed to be delivered. That's the Bible's description of sin for us. We are enslaved to it. But if you remember the means, if you remember the means by which Israel was finally delivered, back in Exodus there, it was by the death of a spotless lamb. A lamb was killed so the firstborn son would not die with the plague of death. And its blood was placed on the doorposts of their homes so that as the angel of death passed through the land, it would pass over their homes. Which is literally where we get that language of Passover from. And God's judgment would not land on them, but again on the lamb instead. The, its life would be given instead. It's, it's this beautiful picture of the gospel there. And by stating that the blood of Jesus brings about our redemption, pays the cost for our freedom, which Paul again says immediately, he defines as the forgiveness of our sins. He presents in a single sentence the entire message of the gospel again. Namely, that in him, in, in the son that God loves, a life is given. A life is given and the, the just legal demands for our sin can be fully met making a way for God's will for unification to finally be realized. And the reason I wanted us to read all the verses, the 3 through 10 instead of just 7 to 10, is to highlight a, a transition that takes place in the passage when we get to verse 7. Because I don't know if you noticed this, but when we read through it, if you look at verses 3 to 6, all of the blessings that Paul unpacks there, uh, uh, our adoption, our predestination, uh, being chosen, all those things are presented in the past tense. Things that have already been accomplished. But when it comes to redemption, forgiveness of our sins, it is stated as a present tense, glorious reality that we experience now. You notice that everything before was, uh, he has blessed us, we were adopted. All of a sudden we get to verse 7, in him we have, presently, now, redemption in Christ. So God's there's a future vision, 
There's a future vision about bringing all things together in Christ and as a redemption from creation's groaning that Paul was talking about in Romans 8. But the redemption from our slavery to sin is a present reality that we experience the moment our sins are covered under Jesus' blood. We experience it now, today, the moment his blood covers us. It's a redemption that we get to experience right now. To highlight how this all works together, commentator Max Turner says it while writing this. The benefit Paul singles out for special mention here is forgiveness of sins. Not because this is the only part of the future blessing that we already experience now, but because it is at the root of all the others. Listen, until sins are dealt with, humankind is alienated from God and his benefits. Or, just to keep using our analogy, until the horse is connected to the front of the cart, God's will and goal for unification can't happen. It can't move. But as I mentioned when we began, therein lies the problem for many of us. Because this hopeful future vision God has to heal and restore all, all the divisions we presently see and experience in this divided world is said to be purposed in Christ. Meaning, this reconciliation of all things is only effective and only relevant as it relates to those who are in Christ. But in order to have that relationship restored with him, we must first see and acknowledge our desperate need for redemption through his blood. The horse that pulls the cart of God's glorious will. And for the vast majority of people, we're simply unwilling to acknowledge that. This is where the reordering of cart and horse I talked about when we began comes into play. We're unwilling to do it. So as I said, we, we, we look at all the divisions that we see and experience in this world, and we're inspired. We're inspired by this hopeful vision here of, of all things restored, uh, all the suffering that we experience because of divisions. We're like, yes, I want that gone. I want to experience my tears wiped away. I want mourning wiped away. All the suffering... Yeah, I want that. But as Tim Keller, along with so many others, says so well, it's one thing to see yourself as a sufferer in need of a helper. It's another thing to see you're in bondage, a captive and a prisoner who's in need of a savior. He goes on, you are not a person who simply needs a helper. What you need is a ransomer. You need a redeemer. And it's at this point that a lot of people just want to say, hang on a minute, just back up a second. Surely, surely it's not as bad as all this. Aren't you going a bit overboard with all of this, like a life is required? Uh, I know I'm not a perfect person by any means, they might say, but, but I think I've lived a pretty decent life. Apparently, I mean, at least as far as a lot of people I know, I'm actually the good one in my group. I'm the good kid in my family, whatever it is. I, I've, I've done pretty well. So, so what's all this about giving a life? Isn't this just a little bit overkill, a little bit much? And then we could jump right back to the why can't God just fix the problem and forgive question. But don't you see the fact that, that Jesus really and truly came to earth and offered up his life for our redemption shows you just how serious the problem really is, as well as what redemption actually costs. Because think about it, if Jesus' death, the spilling of his blood, wasn't actually necessary for your redemption, then his death 
was completely unnecessary. You didn't, you didn't need to do that. And I hear all the time people talking about uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, and they say, you know what? What's really presented to us in the cross is just uh, it's, a, it's an incredible example of the love of God towards us. He wanted to demonstrate how much he loved us, and so he came and died for us. Do you see the problem with that? If Jesus' death wasn't actually necessary to redeem us, his death wasn't loving at all. It was a waste. It was meaningless. As one commentator said, it's like you're out in a boat on a swift river with a friend, and in order to show you how much he loves you, he jumps out of the boat and drowns himself. Does that make you feel loved in any way? No. Why? Well, because your life wasn't in jeopardy. So his willingly giving his life, it's not an act of love. It's a senseless, illogical act. Why would you do that? You're not showing me love. But if I needed that death in order to be saved and you did it, well, then now it's an incredible demonstration of love. But the point is, if we don't need to actually be saved by this death, then Jesus' death is meaningless. So for some, they abandon hope in God's unifying vision because they don't see themselves as in need of redemption. They don't see that our sins and our rebellion against God truly is a capital offense, worthy of death, worthy of a life. But for others, they lose hope in God's vision, not because they don't see themselves as sinners in need of redemption, but because they feel their sins are too great to be redeemed. Just to keep the analogy going, I guess you could say they, they see the, the horse of redemption as unable to pull the cart, or at least as far as they're concerned. Just look again at the description Paul goes on to give of the redemption offered for us in the death of Jesus. He says, The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Verse 8, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Which means when God acted towards you in grace and shed his blood, he, he, didn't, he didn't just offer a set amount Okay, anyone who's sinned up to this point is saved. Anyone over that, sorry. He, he opened the storehouses of his glorious grace and, and, and lavished it on us. Lavish is a word the Bible uses to describe just like prodigal, wasteful spending. He lavished his grace on us. Which means he didn't extend just enough grace to save you in Jesus. He poured out more than you or I could ever have use for. So that there would be no one who could ever be beyond the scope or the reach of his redemption. As Keller so beautifully summarizes, this go the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the same time, are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins presently, now, in this moment. According to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us, past tense, already completed action. How did he lavish it on us? Remember what Paul said here. With all wisdom and understanding, he lavished it on you. Which means at least in exactly the way 
and according to the exact measure that he knew you would need it. That's the redemption offered for us in Jesus. As Clinton Arnold puts, puts it, his grace is sufficiently abundant to cover the sins of all and is more than adequate for the worst of sinners. Which as we saw just two weeks ago, that's exactly how Paul describes himself. More than adequate for all. The mystery of God's will revealed to us to bring all things back together under Christ is, is an inspiring, captivating reality, no doubt for all of us. Again, because we live in a world where we see and experience divisions every day. And so to see the, the hope of these things removed, these things restored to us, it's inspiring, it's captivating. We, we want it so bad. But we must never give in to the belief that such a future vision is possible without the horsepower of redemption through Jesus' blood making it possible for us personally. Which is why the order that the Bible gives us is so important here. For the revealed mystery of God's will, it will come to pass one day, as God's sovereign will of decree cannot help but be. But if we would enjoy, if you and I would enjoy the benefits of the future redemption of all things, we must first Humble ourselves. Acknowledge our need for the redemption already poured out in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. The horse of redemption must be placed in front of this hopeful vision. Or we can never experience it personally. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never received, never known the redemption that Jesus offered here before. I pray that if that's where you're at, that today, Right now would be the day that you would acknowledge your need and receive the grace of God and Jesus that's already being lavishly, prodigally poured out for you. That you would simply, in your heart, cry out to God and say, I acknowledge that I am a sinner in need of your grace. Would you receive me? Would you connect me to that amazing, hopeful vision of the future? I want that so bad. Connect it to me. Be the payment for my sin. And in that moment, you'll receive me. You will be redeemed in that moment, presently now, as you cry out to him for redemption. It is available for all. And if you do know that present redemption, if you do know, well, praise God. Praise God, as Paul instructs us there back at the beginning of verse 3, for his glorious grace to you. And then... And then tell everyone you can about the lavish, glorious grace that brought you in so that by that same grace, more and more might be brought together one day under one head, even Christ.